Hello, this is Andrew Gomison, and it is my privilege to be your host for the Speaking for Him podcast. I want to thank you for taking time this week to join me for another dose of encouragement on this journey that we call the Christian life. And today, for our main segment, we will be looking at The Chosen Season 2, Episode 3, which is titled Matthew 4.24. And I'm excited to dig into this episode with you, but before we do that, I want to talk to you about what is going on. When we were talking about the 2020 election and the lead-up to that momentous event, I told you that one of the key things to think about when you're voting for president is to realize that the president has the power to nominate Supreme Court justices and how much of an impact that can have on the court. Donald Trump had the opportunity and was successful in nominating three different justices. So that definitely changed the complexion of the court. Well, now we are facing a situation where Joe Biden is days away from choosing his own first Supreme Court nominee. President Biden this week is beginning the interview process for his first Supreme Court nomination. He has reportedly narrowed it down to these four candidates after pledging to appoint a black woman to the position. One of the advisors helping him choose is Minion Moore, a former Clinton advisor who, according to recent court filings, sits on the Black Lives Matter Board of Directors. Here to react, Fox News contributor and civil rights attorney and our friend, Leo Terrell. <laughs> Leo, it's so great to see you. My first time on the couch. And? And, my, and I'm excited. I'm happy to be here. Look at that smile. <laughs> yeah. So, Leo, this is the headline from the Daily uh, Mail right now. Revealed, Biden's choice to help with his SCOTUS pick is a BLM board member, CRT promoter, and defund the police supporter, none of which... Joe Biden mentioned when he announced her. Yeah, and that's deceiving to the American public. I want to be very clear. America does not need a Supreme Court justice that shares the values of Black Lives Matter. I mean, let's look at what they believe in. They, they basically co-sponsor the summer riots. They believe in critical race theory. They believe in defunding the police. You tell me if any of those items, and, and also they believe in supporting soft prosecutors. You tell me if any of those things any of those items support American values. We do not need a justice that has that type of mindset. I have a question for you for your consideration. And that is simply this. Would you want a job like Supreme Court justice because of the color of your skin or because of the content of your character? Let me be very clear and let you know that I don't care what color of skin any Supreme Court justice has. I think whether it is Antonin Scalia or Clarence Thomas or so on and so forth, they can be quality justices. I think the ones that I named are two of the best we've ever had because their ideology sticks close to the Constitution and doesn't try to interpret things out of whole cloth. So the first thing I want to address is that when Joe Biden says to the American people, I am going to choose a black woman before he even goes through nominees, he's already backed himself into a corner. I think if you were to think about this for any length of time, you would say that that's actually an insult 
to the black woman that are being considered because your skin color was the first priority. That just does not seem like a good way to go. The second thing I want to mention here is that he is relying on a BLM supporter and someone who worked with the organization to help him make this decision. And I want to make it very clear once again, I believe that Black Lives Matter, I believe that all lives matter. And I know that some people will say, well, all lives won't matter until Black Lives Matter. But I want to put forth to you that we have never had a higher level of victim mentality than we do now. The fact of the matter is, whatever you believe about black lives and the things that they have been victimized in, it is important to realize that the concept of Black Lives Matter is very much divorced if you want to be true to what is going on from the actual organization. Here are some of the things that the actual organization, Black Lives Matter, believes. First of all, they do not support the nuclear family. They support all other modern definitions of the family, but they do not support the nuclear family. Second of all, they support abortion on demand, which takes more black lives than any other segment of society. Why do we say black lives matter if unborn black lives don't matter? This is a problem. So if you have someone with this ideology helping to choose your next nominee, then you know they're going to follow along with these toxic ideologies of the movement. Not the least of which is this victim mentality that everything is wrong because I'm black and everything is wrong with everyone else because they're white. This is not the type of ideology that we need for people that are serving on the highest court of the land. The litmus test, if you will, for a Supreme Court justice should be this. How do you view the Constitution of the United States of America? You see, the Constitution is the unchanging, unwavering basis for our country. Yes, you can legally amend the Constitution, and sometimes that is necessary. But pulling your truth out of the Constitution by constructing things out of whole cloth is not the way to go about doing this. The interesting thing also about the Constitution is that people complain about the past that America has. Because we have mistreated people groups, we have done horrible things, you know, in our history as far as that is concerned. But it is the very Constitution that the left maligns today that has given us the tools that were necessary to change the things that needed to be changed. The 13th Amendment outlawed slavery. And the 14th Amendment showed the full personhood of 
every person regardless of their color. These are things that the Constitution did. And it's that very 14th Amendment that affirmed the full personhood of the African American that is being used as a right for abortion. So, if you're going to serve on the highest court of the land, you should understand judicial law. And part of understanding judicial law is to understand that the judiciary is only one part of a greater whole, including the legislative and executive branches. We do not have courts so that they can rule over us by fiat. We have courts so that they can clarify and make sure that we are following the Constitution. That is the responsibility of the courts. To make sure that the executive and the legislative branch do not step out of line. A couple weeks ago, I received word that one of my very dear friends, Chris McDonald, was close to going to be with her savior. And it was just a few days after that, on February 11th, 2022, that she went to heaven. And I want to take a few moments here right now to just tell you a little bit about what Pris meant to me. I first encountered Pris uh, when I came to Master Arts Theater for the first time in September of 2003 to watch my brother in Pirates of Penzance. I'm fairly certain that Pris was directing that show because she came out and did the curtain speech and talked about the theater and talked a little bit about the shows that were upcoming. And then we saw Pirates of Penzance and I became a season ticket holder because I really resonated with that experience. As time went on uh, for us at the theater, I got the opportunity to be in It's a Wonderful Life. And I got to tell you this story because it's very interesting how it unfolded. I wanted to be in this story, It's a Wonderful Life, because it was a film that I grew up watching every year at Christmas time. And it was a story that I resonated with highly. There were times when the movie It's a Wonderful Life would be something that I would think about when I was going through depression or struggling with my identity and it would help me through. So I was extremely excited when Master Arts was going to do it in 2005 and I wanted to try out. Now, initially, my thought was, well, at least there's a part in this play for someone in a wheelchair because, of course, the villain, Mr. Potter, was in a wheelchair. So I tried out, and I got the call back with several members of my family. I remember thinking that I didn't read well enough for Mr. Potter, but hey, if that's what she wants me to do, I will do that part. And we did the callback, and then we saw the cast list, and she cast me, 
as Sam Wainwright. Now, the interesting thing about that was Sam Wainwright is not in a wheelchair, but the scene with Sam is simply a phone call from an office, and so she was able to think outside the box and invite me to participate in that role. And it was that role in particular that really resurrected a desire for the stage and for theater in my life. And I remember her working so patiently with us. Sometimes she, it would seem like she was being too particular. But I know that the, the main thing was that she wanted to pull out realistic performances and performances that would resonate with the people that were coming to see the show. And she made me a better actor for it. Now, am I Liam Neeson or Daniel Day-Lewis? Still no. But I really feel like that helped me get on a good trajectory for learning how to express myself and to honor God through the arts. Fast forward about six years, and after the frustrating reality of only trying out for one other show and not really having any other availabilities for parts that I could actually do from a wheelchair, I began to consider things from behind the curtain. And I decided that I really wanted to direct. Well, in 2011, uh, in March, uh, they were doing Bells on Their Toes, which is the sequel to Cheaper by the Dozen. And I actually went to the callbacks with my dad and my brother. And the director there, Brian Steffen, was good enough to allow me to step in as his assistant director and I loved it. I spent the early part of it kind of getting in his way and then realized that I just needed to step back and use this as an experience of learning the ropes and getting my sea legs, so to speak. After that experience, I was... I went to the auditions for To Kill a Mockingbird, which was the next show that Master Arts was doing in 2011. And because my sister wanted to try out, and I decided to read, even though I knew I couldn't really do any of the roles. At the time, I thought, maybe I'll sit in the jury in this play. But then Pris informed me that there would not be a jury, that the jury would be something that we had to make the audience believe was there but wasn't actually going to be filled by physical actors through the course of that audition process and then conversations with press she invited me to be on the crew for that show so i got the opportunity to do crew on to kill a mockingbird and mainly my job was to hold the script and be there if people needed to call a line. And I was also just there um, to encourage and build up 
my cast. And that's actually something that I really appreciate probably the most about the theater experience is just this idea of being an encourager and getting to know different people. Chris asked me if I would assist and direct the sound and music. I don't even remember how it came up or how she decided that that would be a good plan. Maybe it was because there wasn't much for me to do in uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, but she's like, I can use you in Sound and Music if you want to be my assistant director. And so I said, absolutely. Because The Sound of Music was one of my favorite stories of all time, much like It's a Wonderful Life. And, you know, I got to put something in here right now and just say that uh, I always try to do the shows that resonate with me personally. And so this was another one that uh, resonated with my childhood. I watched it often. And so I was really excited to watch it come to life on stage. And that, uh, to me, is still one of my all-time favorite shows because we had 38 people, I think, uh, cast and crew on that show. And we crammed everybody into that green room. We crammed everybody onto that stage and we made magic happen for 23 shows, I believe. And it was so exciting to watch that unfold and to bond with the people that we were working with on the show. And I have to tell you, I, I've been very blessed to be a part of cast and crews through the years uh, in all the shows I've been involved in, and there have been several, with people that really like being together and that shows up on stage. You know, you can't fake chemistry, and so when chemistry happens, it's a blessing. So The Sound of Music was... Probably, as I said, one of my favorite shows that Master Arts has ever done and definitely the favorite show that I have ever been a part of just because of the sheer number of people that were involved and yet we still bonded at such a great level. I, I tell you all these stories to tell you that Pris McDonald is a big reason why I had these opportunities. I think maybe that if she hadn't given me the opportunity that she did to act in It's a Wonderful Life, I never would have thought I could direct. And I think that if she hadn't given me the opportunity to help with To Kill a Mockingbird and the opportunity to help with The Sound of Music, I wouldn't still be involved to the level I am today. Um, and so I really owe a lot to this lady. And um, I want to share a clip with you right now from an interview she did a couple of years ago on the Master Arts official podcast, Playing for the Master. And this is a clip of her answering the question of why was Master Arts formed? But the first question I have for you, because this is the 35th, kind of the 35th anniversary of Master Arts this year. What was it? What need did you see in the community or what was happening at the time that inspired you and the folks who founded Master Arts with you, what need did you see that needed to be filled that encouraged you to do this? 
Okay, I will give you quickly the background there. Um, I was teaching at a, a Christian university or Christian college, and there were about five of us that worked in theater because we did some theater there. And there were about five of us that one of the students came to me and said, why don't we start a Lambs Players here in Grand Rapids? That was his question. And then it began to grow from that question to the idea of students at the college were exposed to, and I'm talking particularly of theater or drama. There has always been a strong music program there, but they were exposed also to theater. And then we began to realize and begin to be burdened that once they were out of the college setting, what could they do with their their art that had been stirred and had been nurtured, and where do they go with it now? And so we talked about beginning a community theater so that they had an opportunity, a medium then to grow in the discipleship, grow in the craft, and then serve the, the church and the community with art that was set to glorify God. And that's really the the nurturing pool that started the idea of Master Arts Theater. So actually in the fall, in the winter, I would say, or the fall of 1984, we put together and advertised and started the words of Master Arts Theater. And we put together a an Christmas show that could tour, go to, to churches, and, and it was called Emmanuel, and it was a, you know, a, a Christmas show. And it was simply done in that sense. We only carried a few items as far as any kind of setting or anything. But we performed it probably five or six times in different locations. So that really was the beginning. And But we started officially in 1985, and that's why the anniversary comes the way it does. And we got our um, 501c3, we were incorporated, we uh, set up our own constitution and all those kinds of things. So that's where it came from in 1985. And what was the nurturing? What was the nudge? We felt artists or students (laughs) needed a way to continue their expression of the arts that they, they touched and received nudges. And it had to grow. So that's Pris herself talking about the formation of Master Arts Theater. And I'm going to move on very quickly here, but I just wanted to end this segment by just saying thank you, Pris, for everything that you've given to me and to so many others. I also want to state that the most important thing that Master Arts has given me is people. The friendships that I have forged over the years there, two of my dearest friends, Amy and Carissa, have come as a direct result of Master Arts Theater, and my life would not be the same without them. And although I had an interest in radio before Master Arts and so likely would have gone down the podcast alleyway anyway, I do think that Master Arts had an influence on me and in giving me the confidence to continue on in my ministry and to pursue greater goals within my ministry. 
things like my multi-voice readings of A Christmas Carol and Pilgrim's Progress probably would not have been concepts that I would have approached without the experiences that I had at Master Arts Theater. Well, today I'm going to review for you the third episode of Season 2 of The Chosen, and this is called Matthew 4.24. Before I dig into that episode, I just want to share with you what Matthew 4.24 says to give you some context for our discussion today. Matthew 4.24 reads, And his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought unto him all sick people, that were taken with diverse diseases and torments, and those which were possessed with devils, and those which were lunatic, and those that had the palsy, and he healed them. And so that is the backdrop upon which this episode is based. And I think I've told you before that it gets a little dicey for me when there's an episode that does not have a lot of scripture within it and isn't guided by specific Bible stories. But in this case, I think it was actually really interesting to take that verse, which is often glossed over by us, and think about what the practical implications of it were. Because as we open the episode, we see uh, that Jesus is healing people and meeting with all these individuals and it's been going on for some time and the disciples are worried about him and they're worried about their schedule and they're like, this is taking way too long. Of course, they have the human finite understanding of what Jesus is doing and that is portrayed very well. And through the course of this episode, uh, we have several discussions among the disciples and Jesus followers that are quite interesting. And actually, our quote of the day comes from one of those discussions because the disciples are discussing the fact that there seems to be an indication in the scriptures that all things must be holy for the Messiah to come. And then Mary brings something important to light when she says our quote of the day. So our quote of the day is, I don't think he's waiting for us to be holy. I think he's here because we can't be holy without him. Now, it is true that if we study our Bibles, we read these words, Be ye holy, for I am holy. We know that it's an expectation of God for us that we would pursue and become holy. But we also know that we are in a process of sanctification, which means through this life, we are going through different experiences so that we will hopefully become more and more conformed to the image of Jesus. And that is brought out in Romans. So I really like the poignancy of this statement by Mary that it's not about us being holy before we come to Christ. Because a lot of times people have that mistaken idea. 
They're like, well, I'll clean myself up, and then when I'm clean enough, I'll come to Jesus. And what Jesus is actually saying to us today, what he's saying to you today as you're listening to this, is that he is the one that can make you holy. And not only can he, but he wants to. It is what I also do not understand. Isn't the Messiah supposed to come at a time when all is holy? That's at least what you've been telling me. What is that from? Even a prophetic poem from the rabbis not so long ago. And there shall be no unrighteousness in them on his day. For they shall all be holy, and their king shall be the Lord Messiah. This is why the Pharisees do not think he is the one, Mary. You have to help clean up the red quarter first. (laughs) I don't think he's waiting for us to be holy. And I think he's here because we can't be holy without him. Whoa. That's good. The baptizer will want to use that. So we see several things at play in this episode. First of all, we see, as I said, the line of people that are waiting to see Jesus. And there are so many scriptures, like the one I read a few minutes ago, where we just read that the multitudes came to Jesus and he healed them all. There were places where Jesus did not heal. But I think pretty much when he stopped to heal in a certain place, he waited until everyone was taken care of. And knowing the character of Jesus, I'm sure he took time with each individual. And that is a lesson for us, I believe, to take time to invest in relationships. I've told you many times on this podcast, I believe, that relationships are important to me because they are important to my Savior. And this is just one of the examples of that, just seeing this play out. The other thing that we see in this episode is Matthew is grappling with the things that he can't understand. He's a very practical, pragmatic, you know, get it all down in writing, make it all make sense type of guy And Philip has kind of come alongside him to tutor him and said, you know what? Some things don't make sense on the surface. You have to study them out. You have to consider them and you have to take them by faith because there's a point where he shares with, uh, Matthew, a scripture for consideration from the Psalms. If I'd, Ascend to the heavens, you are there. If I descend into the depths, you are there. And Matthew's having a hard time understanding what that means. And Philip kind of breaks it down for him and says, well, that just means that no matter where you go, God will be there. You can't get away from God and who he is. And I I like the patience of the Philip character in this episode and we talked about that in the last episode when he said Matthew forget your past when it comes to the Messiah is is all that matters and so we see Philip once again being a good mentor and a good friend to Matthew and then we see some of the interplay from the disciples we see them talking about grappling with 
being Jewish and following the Jewish law. And when they were kids, kind of uh, seeking certain opportunities to disregard the Jewish law. And to me, that just shows the humanity of the disciples and how they were not able to be perfect and kind of ties back to what Mary said in our court of the day and what I shared in that last clip where she's saying, I don't think he's waiting for us to be holy. I think he's here because we can't be holy without him. And what does Galatians say? It says that he came after the fullness of time to redeem those who are under the law. And so I just am so thankful for the redemption that is in the Lord Jesus Christ because I know that I myself cannot attain to the perfection necessary to go to heaven. And I also, as was stated previously, can't get away from God's presence either. I can't just choose to hide from God because I'm not worthy, so I have to accept the sacrifice of Jesus to make me righteous. You know, I love that Jesus' prerogative isn't to look at us on the basis of who we are, but on the basis of who we have the potential to be if we trust him. And so I I really feel like that comes out in The Chosen, because the people that he chose were not perfect. They often quarreled amongst themselves. One of the big centers of attention is actually the growing tension between Peter and Matthew um, because Peter continues to be resentful of Matthew for being the tax collector that made his life miserable uh, because Matthew, the way they portray it in this series is that he chose to serve the Romans as a tax collector and he got a lot of advantages out of it, but he also alienated himself from his family and also from people in his town uh, and one of those being Peter. So as these episodes have gone on, we see the growing tension between them and the fact that Peter makes no bones about the fact that he can't stand Matthew. And I believe it was the last episode that we reviewed where Matthew basically says, no one here likes me. Now, of course, um, the the ladies that are following Jesus, Rhema and Mary Magdalene, they have a soft spot for Matthew. Um, but pretty much all the guys are a little bit more uh, rough going than Matthew, so he doesn't really fit in until Philip comes and gives him a friend. Now, again, a lot of this is supposition, so, you know, it's up to interpretation, and this is the way that Dallas and the filmmakers have chosen to interpret it. But I really like the way that it comes across, um, because it's definitely very plausible. Um, I don't know if you've ever wondered what the disciples were doing during these long healing sessions of Jesus, but I really feel like this episode brings out some good possibilities of what they might be doing. Now, there's one interesting element here as well, and that is that one of the actors, um, I believe the one that plays Little James, 
or James the Less, has cerebral palsy. And so he walks with a limp, and they actually brought it into this episode. And they actually have a conversation between him and Thomas, where Thomas is asking him, why haven't you not sought healing from the Master? And I really liked the way that was portrayed as well, because... Uh, little James basically says, I don't want to follow him just for healing. And I resonate with that because some people have said to me that if I had enough faith in God, that he would heal me. And my response to them is, I don't follow God because he has the potential to heal me here on earth. I follow God because he is the one that gives me purpose and show us purpose in the suffering that we have. And the reality of life is that sometimes when we ask God for healing, he gives it. Other times, he doesn't. But he's still good. So, what are some specific things that I want to point out from this episode? First of all, I like seeing the disciples just kind of in a relaxed conversation around the fire talking about the things that they experienced as children. And I also liked that Mary, the mother of Jesus, uh, comes along and tells a little bit about what it was like to be there when Jesus was born. She doesn't want to go into detail, but she just says, you know, This was really difficult for me to comprehend as a human being. And this I like as well, because some people put Mary on a pedestal that she shouldn't be on. She is a highly favored woman, the Bible says. But she also knew her humanity. She knew her need of a savior. When she found out she was going to have baby Jesus, she said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. So she knew her humanity. She knew her limitations. And I I just really like that. I like the fact that at the end of Jesus' day, when he is tired from uh, ministering to the people, that his mother Mary goes and ministers to him. I think it's, kind of interesting that she makes a comment earlier in the episode that he hasn't needed me since he learned to walk, but yet we see her being able to minister him, minister to him and encourage and comfort him, you know, and lest we think that the son of God does not need that. Remember that in the Bible, in the garden, Jesus says, could you not watch with me one hour? So, this is the type of relationship that he does want with his children. And so I just really feel like this actually is a really all around good episode. If you, if you don't pay attention to the title of the episode, you might be watching it and be like, why is all this happening? And it's not in the scriptures. But if if you read Matthew 4.24 and then you watch the episode, then it makes a whole lot of sense and it's actually pretty exciting to consider. And it just shows 
over and over again the difference that Jesus made in the lives of so many. You know, Mary says in season one, I think episode two, one of the pivotal lines of the entire series so far, even with all 16 episodes, when she says, I was one way, and now I'm completely different. And the only thing that happened in between was him. And so you see some of that happening in this episode. And I just really, really resonate uh, with this episode because I've been um, where the disciples are. I felt um, inadequate. I felt unholy. But I know that as I surrender to God, as I allow him to work in me, then that's when the holiness occurs. Because the Bible says in Philippians uh, chapter 2 that it is God who worketh in us to will and to do of his good pleasure. And so I just want to encourage you to watch this episode um, and to enjoy it with your friends and family. You know, the cool thing about this is a lot of times I will review something and then I'll say, hurry out to theater so you can see it or wait for it to pop up on some random streaming service. But The Chosen has its own app and it remains free for everyone. And you have the opportunity to donate to pay it forward and to allow others to watch for free. But it is not a requirement of watching the series. And to me, that is the most exciting thing about this. It's not a money grab because... If it were, then it would not be on a free platform where you could watch it at any time. This is simply Dallas and his friends who have the passion to share the story of Jesus in a unique and amazing way. And I was just really blessed by that, and I hope and trust that you will be too. So to summarize, I think... This episode shows us a lot of lessons about interpersonal relationships and it makes us think about who we are and what Jesus really gave us because he didn't just, you know, die on the cross for us and nothing happened. You know, some people say, well, Jesus died on the cross because he loved us. And that is part of it. That is true, that he did love us. But he died on the cross so that you and I could live a life that we weren't capable of living otherwise. And I think that's an important thing to keep in mind as we go through this life, is that we have the capability of living in the power of the resurrection. You know, we're, we're just a few weeks away from Easter. Um, and so we need to realize that Easter and resurrection Sunday is all about the change that only God could make in our lives. In Ephesians, it says you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but he made you alive through his blood. Because of the cross. What an exciting reality that is for each believer. 
that's about all I have to share with you for this week's episode. I just wanted to say very quickly at the end here, I hope that you will share this with your family and friends. And also, I'm very excited to announce that plans are coming together for my 500th episode celebration, which will take place on April 30th of 2022. Uh, And there will be more details passed along with you as things get firmed up. But I just wanted you to be aware of that. And the hope is that I will be able to do a live episode with a studio audience. And again, more details will will be passed along as that gets crystallized. But with that being said, I hope that you have a wonderful week and that you keep serving the best of masters. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Your host has been Andrew Gomison, founder of Speaking for Him. For more information on today's show and to leave us comments and voicemails, visit speakingforhim.blogspot.com. You can find Andrew's ministry at speakingforhim.com. That's speaking, the number four, H-I-M. You can also interact with us at facebook.com slash speakingforhim and on Twitter at Speaking for Him. And when you look for us on iTunes and Stitcher, let us know what you think of the podcast by leaving a rating and review.